แล้วค่ะถ้าช่วงนี้พร้อมแล้วนะคะไปพบกับสปีกเกอร์ของเราเลยดีกว่าค่ะ Ladies and gentlemen coming up to our next presentation which is Asian credit as a way to manage global uncertainty without further ado please give a warm welcome to Mr. Adian Yao Senior Emerging Asia Economist from AXA big round of applause please Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's my great uh, pleasure uh, to participate in this year's uh, Bolong uh, Investment Fund Forum on behalf of uh, my company, uh, XR Investment Managers. Uh, I have to say that uh, the conversation we just had was very impressive. Um, I, a couple of years ago, uh, did a half a marathon, but that was only 20-something K, and my body almost fell apart. So I can't really imagine of doing 80K. Um, so in that regard, uh, I'm glad that I'm not in the career of uh, running, uh, but I am in the career of uh, managing your money and wealth. So I may not be a good runner, but hopefully that uh, will do a better job at managing your money. So today, uh, the topic of my presentation is uh, going to be on uh, Asia Credit. And hopefully that by the end of the 30 minutes presentation, I'll be able to convince you two things. One, Asia Credit as an asset class deserve a position in your portfolio. And secondly, by investing in this market, hopefully you would invest along with us using a short duration strategy. Now I appreciate that uh, uh, short duration as a strategy may not be something that you are familiar with. So the key focus of today's presentation is going to explain to you how it works and why it works. So let me first uh, uh, start to give you a bit of a rundown, brief rundown of today's presentation. I'm going to first start with a, a brief discussion of the macroeconomic backdrop. Uh, we all know that we are today living in a highly uncertain macro environment. And part of this uncertainty, I would argue, is a structural, it's a secular. It's driven by the structural rivalry between the world's two largest economies, US and China. And that, in our view, is going to lead to further tensions and conflicts uh, in many years to come, if not decades. And that, unfortunately, is going to bring some uh, unencouraging news for investors in financial market. Because if you have a highly uncertain macroeconomic environment, that's probably going to drive uh, further risks and volatilities in global financial markets. So the key question for investors is, uh, how do you manage your portfolio in this kind of environment? Now, we make the point that uh, um, in this kind of environment, uh, by traditional way of investing, uh, purely based on distinctive risk on and risk off is not going to be appropriate anymore. Because simply, you don't know where the market is going to go. You don't know whether risk is being on or off. So in that regard, instead of making polarizing bets in the financial market, we actually rec re recommend the investor to take a middle position in the entire risk spectrum. And that's why we advocate investment-grade credit, uh, which allows, in our view, investors to earn the risk premium against a very low level of uh, risk of defaults. The next question that we have to ask ourselves is, if I do buy into this credit argument, where geographically should I put my bet? Now, in uh, today's presentation, we're also going to show you a couple of uh, comparative matrices that actually suggest that Asia as a credit market actually stand out from the crowd. 
uh, from a fundamental valuation and the risk of return perspectives. And finally, how do you invest? What kind of specific strategy would you use in investing in Asia Credit? And here at XIM, we are a firm believer of a short-duration strategy. And as I mentioned, that it may not be a strategy that's familiar with a lot of people, so I'm going to spend some time to explain to you uh, how it works and why it works against this uh, world of increased uncertainties. So let me briefly uh, touch on the macroeconomic picture. Now, if you ask an economist, uh, what's the buzzword that you would use to describe the macroeconomic uh, environment over the past two years, I'm sure that the term uncertainty will come up a lot. And indeed, that uh, nowhere this uncertainty is manifested better than the area of international trade. If you look at this index, it's a, a World Trade Uncertainty Index created by The Economist at the International Monetary Fund. And you can see that before 2017, in the preceding decades, the world was experiencing very low level of trade uncertainties because the world was approaching globalization free trade. 2017 marked a really a turning point where we start to see rising trade tensions and uncertainties. And that uncertainty really started to ranch it up in 2018, 2019, for reasons that we all know, that the world's largest economy started to, to engage in trade wars against many of its trading partners. Now, the US and China trade war certainly has been the most attention-grabbing conflicts in this field. And clearly, we have already seen substantial impact of these trade conflicts down to the bilateral economies. If you look at uh, the bilateral trade flows, so China's export to the US and US export to China, they have tumbled by something like 20 to 30% so far in 2019. And that's not the end of it, because the trade conflicts between the world's two largest economies were bound to have a spillover effect. And that's indeed what we have seen, that global trade cycle, the black line on that uh, slide, uh, on that chart, uh, has been on a downward trajectory over the past 12 months as well. So everybody uh, feels the pain of this trade conflicts. And it's not just the economic pain that we have to endure. If you look at the financial markets, Financial markets have tuned in to abundant flow of uh, the trade war saga over the past two years. In this chart, we show the uh, market reaction in China, so Chinese CNYUSD and uh, Chinese equities. And you can clearly identify that the market reacting almost every step away when you have positive and negative uh, news about trade negotiations, about the tariffs. But we know that it's not just China that has been mired into this conflict, right? Markets in the US, in Europe, and here in Thailand have also tuned in to these headline news developments regarding the trade conflicts. So it's not just the investors in China and the US have to pay attention to this macroeconomic shock, but everybody taking the piece of it. Now, over the last uh, two, three weeks, I have to say that, uh, to our surprise, 
uh, we actually got to uh, some sort of a breakthrough in the trade negotiation, right? As we all know that uh, the uh, uh, China and the U.S. right now are working towards some sort of a interim deal, and that's why you see that uh, S&P 500 bounced back uh, to near record highs, and the U.S. Treasury yield now trading close uh, 170 uh, from uh, the low of 140. However, make no mistakes. This is not going to be the start of a normalizing relationship between U.S. and China. In our view, the increasing rivalry between the two most powerful economies and countries on Earth is going to be persistent for the coming years, if not decades. If you look at this chart, which I thought was very interesting, it's from Ray Dalio of Bridgewaters. What it shows is the national power of a number of leading countries over the past five, six hundred years. The red line is China, and the blue line is the US. What we've seen over the past two, three decades is a convergence of that national power. China is reasserting its position on the global stage after the open door policies. And in relatively speaking, you see that the US is an overall influence and power is being on the decline. Now, throughout the past five, six hundred years of history, we've actually seen many occasions at which that uh, the ruling powers on the descent, and you have a rising power on the rise, and when you have a convergence and even crossover of those two powers, that generally lead to increasing tensions and conflicts between those two countries, and in some cases, actually lead to instability uh, to the world. And essentially, what we are seeing right now is a repeat of that history. That when you have a convergence of two major powers, that bound to lead to tensions and conflicts. Trade war is just one symptom of this increasing rivalry, but we don't think it's going to stop there. Already, we have seen areas of technology that prone to conflicts and disputes relating to Huawei, relating to 5G. We've seen increasing talks of financial restrictions of Chinese companies in the U.S. We've already seen that China's investment in the U.S. is being restricted for national security reasons. And uh, geopolitically, we know that uh, they are engaging in uh, rivalries in areas like South China Sea, in Taiwan, and in Hong Kong as well. So over the coming years, we can expect further tensions and conflicts to rise because of this structural competition for global leadership by those two economies, uh, by these two countries. And that's why we say this is a structural de development. It's a new normal that investors have to pay acute attention to and be prepared for. The key question, as I posed from the very start, is how should we position uh, our portfolio as investors? When we're seeing this structural shift of uh, uncertainty, the level of uncertainty is on the rise in the global macro environment, how should we invest our position for ourselves? Now, that's why I say that, that when you think of the traditional way of a, a very popular traditional way of investing through uh, either a, a risk on and risk off type of expectations, that's not going to work for two primary reasons. The first reason is that given the level of uncertainty on the rise, 
you don't really know where the market is going to go. The predictability of that market direction is going to subside, it's going to reduce substantially. Secondly, even if you manage to get the short-term direction of the market right, the market can change regime and change react, react, uh, directions very swiftly. Right? Today, US and China could be engaging in trade talk and approaching to a trade deal, but all that hope can be dashed with one single tweet from Donald Trump. Right? You don't really know how long this uh, sort of a risk-on move is going to continue and when is it going to, risk, uh, to, uh, to shift uh, to risk-off. And that's why we say that uh, making polarizing bad, so risk-on you buy equities and risk-off you buy uh, government bond, is not uh, going to be optimal in this kind of environment. So our suggestion is uh, instead of uh, making positions at the two polars of the risk spectrum, you stand in the middle. And one of the asset classes that we really recommend is investment-grade credit. If you look at this chart, this looks at the historical performance of investment-grade credit globally, that's the red line, against the equity market and also government bonds. You do see that the performance IG generally IG credit generally sit in between the more volatile higher return equities, which is the green line, and the lower volatility and lower return government bonds. So in our view that investment grade credit does represent that mid-ground bet uh, against the, the backdrop of a high heightened uncertainty and the sense of not knowing where the market is heading to. So that's the first reason that we think uh, IG credit could be a good investment. The second reason is that the risks involved in investing in IG credit is actually not as high as most people think. People tend to think that IG credit is a risky asset, so that, that's closer to, to equity. But if you think about the fundamental payoff structure of a credit investment, and assume that you are a hold to maturity uh, investor. Essentially, as you hold this bond until maturity, and at the final point of that bond, you only face two binary outcomes. You either get paid, so you get your principal back and you get to the coupon, so you earn the return that you're entitled to, or you're not getting paid in full, and that means that the issuer goes default. That's it. Those are the only two outcomes that you face with a credit investment. And what that means is that the only disruptive risk to a credit investor is if an issuer defaults. And let's take a look at how big that default risk it really is. This is uh, uh, analysis, uh, for latest analysis from Standard Poor's, the international rating agency, that essentially documents uh, the number of default cases for global investment grade IG and global high yield. And the top chart shows the, um, the default rate. Now, since that we are talking about IG, those the li that line that is sticking to the bottom of the axis is essentially the default rate of a global IG. You can see it's very low. And if you take a look at the number of cases of defaults, you can also see that in the IG universe, default cases are actually quite rare. If you look at the most recent decade since 2010, you only got the two default cases globally. And that's it, only two default cases. So unless you hold a those two bonds, 
you effectively always made a fool of your investment. You always earn the return that you're entitled to. And that's why I say that if you are whole to maturity investor, in fact, that the risk, the, the risk that truly disrupting your investment performance, i.e. default, is actually much lower than most people think. So for those two reasons, one that IG credit really represents a mid-ground bet against a highly uncertain macro environment, and two, the risks associated with this investment is actually lower than people think. We actually prefer to hold uh, uh, IG credit in this kind of a macro environment of heightened uncertainty. So if you are hopefully convinced that uh, IG credit should be an asset class that you want to gain more exposure to, the next question is that uh, where geographically should you place more of your bet? In this slide, we showed a number of uh, uh, comparative metrics that actually point out that Asia, our home market, is actually quite well positioned against uh, uh, peers. If you look at the top left-hand side chart, it shows that the overall distribution of a credit rating of Asia issuers are actually more healthy compared to global peers. In this chart, top left-hand side table, you see that uh, uh, Asia's default rate, both current and historical, the red, line, uh, red numbers, compared to uh, other regions, tend to be lower as well. If you look at the, the average uh, interest rate of Asia, so your, this is for high yield and this is for investment grade, you see that uh, Asia's average yield are, generally speaking, higher than US and Europe, and roughly comparable to other parts of the emerging market. And that final point is actually very important because we know that we are currently living in a very low and even negative uh, uh, interest rate world. Today, there are 14 trillion of bonds globally that currently carry negative interest rate. Most of them are in Europe, uh, Japan, and some of them are in the US as well. So for those investors in developed world hungry for, for yield, Asia as Asia IG that uh, delivers roughly about 4.5% yield, and Asia high yield deliver almost 8% yield, actually it's very attractive to these yield-seeking DM investors. And we also take a look at the historical performance of Asia credit versus other market. I think the right-hand side chart is very self-explanatory. You see that Asia credits generally deliver higher return in both IG and high yield space uh, historically, and uh, uh, those returns are delivered actually with a lower level of volatility. Um, so that's why you, um, you know, by investing in Asia credit, you actually boost your sharp ratio. And indeed, we have done some uh, portfolio engineering uh, work to think that if you are a global diversified uh, fixed income investor, uh, if you allocate a certain part of your portfolio, your AOM, to Asia credit, what does it do to your overall performance? You can see that as you increase the weight of uh, Asia credit, you generally see increasing returns, even though that you also see increasing volatility, but clearly that the rise of return is more than compensating for the risk you are take. And that's why that uh, the sharp ratios increase as you move uh, further of your AOM into Asia credit. So 
from the last two slides, we have demonstrated that uh, across a number of uh, fundamental valuation and risk return uh, matrix, Asia actually stand out from the crowd. So if you do want to invest in Asia uh, IG credit, sorry, if you do want to invest in IG credit as an asset class, then Asia is actually not a bad place to be. Now, up until this point, we have uh, uh, discussed that uh, we are heading into a world of increased macro uncertainty. And we say that in this kind of environment, uh, instead of making polarizing bad in equities and safe haven government bonds, you should stay in the middle of the risk spectrum. Then we take a look at the various of, uh, different regions of IG credit, and Asia actually come up uh, uh, as a fairly attractive place. The final question that we want to ask ourselves is, how do you invest in Asia credit? What a specific strategy should you adopt in dealing with the heightened uncertainty and risk uh, in the macro environment? Now, I mentioned from the very start that uh, in XIM, we are truly believer of a short duration strategy. Now, this short duration strategy, for some people, you may think, well, this is just XIM betting on rising interest rate. That is uh, oversimplification and even, um, I would call it a false interpretation of how this strategy actually works. Let me briefly explain. If you are a credit investor, and you think about what kind of risks that uh, you are subject to. There are two broad types of risks that uh, you are exposed to. The first one is interest rate risk, right? The movement of a risk-free interest rate would impact your portfolio. The second risk is a credit risk, which is relating to uh, the uh, default risk of uh, issuers. Now, we just mentioned from early slides that uh, default uh, uh, cases are actually quite rare. So that risk, if you are buying holding investor, is actually quite low. So let's uh, put that aside and focus on interest rate risk. I'll say that the interest rate risk for fixed income portfolio managers uh, is uh, very difficult to manage for two primary reasons, two very unappealing characteristics associated with uh, interest rate risk. The first thing is uh, interest rate is notoriously difficult to forecast. If you take a look at the right-hand side chart, sorry, left-hand side chart, this is the uh, historical evolution of a 10-year US uh, Treasury interest rate, essentially over the past uh, 15 years. That's the solid the blue line. You also see in this, uh, on this uh, chart, uh, number of those uh, blue dotted lines, which represents the market consensus forecast of interest rate at the beginning of the year uh, for the coming 12 months. So basically, you have those forecasts uh, going back to you know, 2003 every year for the past 15 years. Now, what you see in this chart is that uh, the market has a polling track record of forecasting interest rate. Over this entire period, mostly interest rate is on a structural downward trajectory, and uh, markets uh, keep on forecasting rising interest rate. So in most of the years, we as a market consensus can't even forecast the direction of the interest rate, let alone the absolute end of year levels. So interest rate is very difficult to forecast. The second thing is that the movement of interest rate is actually a key source of volatility for all kinds of fixed income portfolios. A simple illustration of this, if you look at the, perfor oops. If you look at the performance of uh, uh, two uh, fixed income instruments, 
One has a long duration, so 30-year um, uh, treasury bonds, that's the pink line. And the blue one is the two-year treasury uh, bond, which obviously have a much shorter duration. And you can see that over this captured period, you essentially end up with the same level of return, but in the interim, the long duration bond that gives you more exposure to interest rate, it's so much more volatile compared to the short duration bond. So there you go, you have those two characteristics with interest rate risk. One is very difficult to forecast, and two is a key source of volatility to fixed income portfolio. And because of those two characteristics, if you are a fixed income manager, you want to move uh, uh, as far away as possible from that risk because it's so difficult to manage, right? So that's essentially bring out the key uh, core of uh, how we manage the short duration strategy. We systematically reduce our exposure to interest rate, which is something that we cannot manage. We then reallocate that risk budget to something that uh, we feel more confident and more comfortable in managing, and that is a short duration credit. So that, in a nutshell, is how we manage this so-called short duration strategy. Now, the actual implementation and execution of the investment process, obviously, uh, it's much more complex and sophisticated. But in a nutshell, this essentially is how this strategy works. So does it work? Well, let's look at the performance of this strategy. Um, the first thing that before we sort of go into the performance, uh, uh, I want to mention is that uh, short duration strategy in the Asia bond uh, fund universe is actually quite unique. There are not many funds that use this as a systematic way of managing fixed income uh, uh, portfolio. In the uh, entire Morningstar uh, Asian bond universe, there are 90 bonds, so 90 bonds, uh, bond fund there, we can only identify the three uh, funds that officially use a short duration as an investment strategy. So we saw the performance of these uh, three funds, A, B, C, uh, here, and then we also saw the, uh, the uh, overall benchmark of uh, Asia uh, bond uh, index. Now, for compliance reason, I can't actually tell you which one of these three funds is coming from XIM, but here's a subtle hint. The initial of uh, EXA is A, and we got the fund A, B, C. <laughs> so uh, it's a subtle point, but hopefully you, you, you get to where I'm getting at. Now, if we can focus a little bit more on the performance of fund A, since they share the same initial as our company, you can see that uh, since the inception, uh, this fund has uh, delivered, so over the past uh, uh, four and a half years since April 2015, this fund has delivered uh, over 24% of return, higher than the benchmark of 21 and the peer group average of uh, just under 22%. But more importantly, this fund has generated a higher return with much lower level of volatility at an annualized 2.3% versus the benchmark of 3.2 and the peer group of 3.9%. Why? Remember I said uh, in the earlier slide that Interest rate movement is a key source of volatility for all fixed income portfolio. And since in this strategy, we systematically reduce our exposure to interest rate, that means we can generate a performance with much lower total volatility. And combination of those higher top line return and lower volatility that give us a higher Sharpe ratio compared to peer group and the overall benchmark. 
The final thing that I want to draw your attention to in terms of performance is the up and down market capture. Now, in the up market, when interest rate falls and uh, uh, Asian bond market rallies, we capture just under 82% of uh, overall market gains. Now, that's uh, nothing to write home about. You know, we underperform, and that's not how we sort of deliver our excess return. But if you look at the down market capture, right? when the bond market in Asia is setting off in a rising interest rate widening spread environment, we suffer less than a quarter of that uh, overall loss of the benchmark, only 24%. And that's essentially how we generate our excess return and uh, outperformance. It's by providing an ability to preserve a capital and provide the downside when the overall market is setting off. So if I put this in a sort of a risk on and risk off type of discussion, obviously when the fixed income market is selling off, that's typically driven by rising interest rate, and rising interest rate typically associated with a risk on type of environment. So we have shown from the previous slide that in the risk on environment, we perform really well compared to peer group and the benchmark. Well, what about a risk off? Right? We know that in a risk-off uh, environment, uh, typically you, you tend to think about equity market uh, sell off very aggressively. Now, this chart shows uh, uh, the Asia short durations performance against the two major equity markets of the world, uh, US S&P 500 and also China uh, Shanghai Composite. Now, you can see that uh, in the yellow highlighted area, over the past four and a half years, there are three major risk-off episodes. In second half of 2015, China was down close to 50%, US was down more than 10%, and uh, short duration was up 2%. In 2018, China was down 30%, US was down close to 20%, short duration was up 2%. And since the Q1 of this year, China was down 10%, US was flat, and short duration strategy was up 4%. So in a risk-off environment, uh, this strategy also demonstrated the ability to not just preserve capital, but actually produce positive returns. And that's not something to, um, to be underestimated about, because credit, typically in investors' mindset, is actually a risky asset. So when you have equity market selling off you know, something like 50%, you wouldn't expect the credit to, to come down with it as well. And yet, that this strategy in those risk-off period have managed to eke out a positive return as well. So both, in both risk-on and risk-off period, this strategy has demonstrated the ability to produce good returns, steady returns, uh, with a low level of volatility. And if we sort of link all of this discussion to what we said early on, the world is becoming increasingly uncertain. And uh, if you pick an asset class to avoid making side you know, extreme uh, bets, and sitting right in the middle, which is uh, IG credit, and apply a strategy, i.e. short duration, to that investment that allows you to perform in both a risk-on and a risk-off environment, then I think that's a pretty encouraging and attractive proposition to have. And ASD, Asia Short Duration Fund, has demonstrated the ability to do just that over the past four and a half years, and that's why we think it deserves the attention of our clients and investors. Let me just finally, uh, finally wrap up the presentation by providing you a, a summary of the key points of my presentation today. We started today's discussion by looking at uh, 
uh, a highly uncertain uh, world that we are living in. And I think the only certainty that we can say about the future of a market is that the predictability of a market direction is going to become increasingly more difficult. And that means higher uncertainty, higher risks, and higher volatility for financial markets. We then take a look at um, you know, how investors should position themselves against this kind of backdrop. And we make the point that making polarizing bad equity versus safe government bonds is no longer going to cut it. And we recommend to stay in the middle of that risk spectrum by exposing to investment-grade uh, credit, which allows you to gain the risk premium without that much of a risk of a default. We then take a look at the regional selection. And uh, Asia, our home market, actually uh, come out on top across a number of uh, fundamental uh, valuation and risk-reward uh, matrix. And finally, we ask the key question, how you should invest? What kind of a strategy would you adopt? And here we explain uh, uh, our flagship strategy, which is a short duration, that represents a systematic reallocation of risk from something that we cannot manage very effectively to something that we have a lot of confidence and a lot of comfort in managing. And we show that, uh, that this strategy has performed really well uh, in both risk-on and risk-off environment uh, since the inception uh, over the past almost five years. Um, and that, I think, is a, a very solid proposition uh, for our investors uh, in the uh, world and the market conditions of a heightened uh, uncertainty and risks. So with that, I come to the end of today's presentation. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I do hope that some of these materials are interesting and useful to you. Uh, me and my colleagues will stick around for the rest of today. So if you have questions, do feel free to come to us. Thank you very much.